today we're talking about an American revolution going on at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in the form of the American Revolutions, what's the official title? Uh, American Revolutions, the United States History Cycle. That's very impressive sounding. And Julie Felice Dubner is the associate director of this program. 400 years later, you're basically creating a new cycle of Shakespearean history plays, aren't you? Yeah, I think the original intention behind it was um, to create a new canon of American work. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. Thanks for subscribing, streaming, or downloading and listening to us on your computer or tablet or phone. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast number 615, American Revolutions on Stage. Julie Felice Dubner is Associate Director of Oregon Shakespeare Festival's American Revolutions, the United States History Cycle, a multi-decade program of commissioning and developing 37 new plays sprung from moments of change in United States history. On my recent trip to Ashland, I was able to meet and chat with Julie about OSF's program and the wonderful plays that have already come out of it, several of which appeared on this week's list of the top 10 most produced plays of the 2018 and 2019 season compiled by American Theatre Magazine. Julie began our conversation by telling me how the American Revolutions project began. Bill Rausch, when he came in to interview for the job at OSF, he had, uh, uh, had been asked, you know, what kind of project would you do? And he looked at Shakespeare's histories and talked a lot about how Shakespeare had written the history of his people onto the stage. And that question, I think, that all of us have constantly, over and over again, all the time throughout history, Mm -hmm. is what does it mean to be American? And uh, Bill brought in his friend Allison Carey to help design and fund the program. And she came in very much with that question of how do you, what is an American canon? What is an American history? And so that was when the program launched with the idea of creating 37 plays. Luckily, I hadn't. I came out for my job interview, <laughs> and I had an intern in Louisville, Kentucky, who had uh, grown up in Ashland. And I, I said to him, "37 plays? Why 37?" And he just looked at me and goes, "Shakespeare." And I was like, "Oh, okay." So 37 plays is the number of plays that OSF officially recognizes as the Shakespeare canon. So our goal was very explicitly to use Shakespeare as an inspiration. Right to create a new canon of American history plays. Right. And and yesterday at a talk that you and Allison were giving about about many things, you talked about the origin of the program and how Bill's original idea was that it was these these plays would be somehow um, tied to uh, American presidents, and that Allison was the person who explained why that might not be a great idea. <laughs> Could you articulate that? Sure. Yeah, Allison. Um, uh, yeah, Bill's original idea had been to do a play for every presidency, um, and Allison very quickly pointed out that. Um, Maybe as Americans calling out the idea of presidents being like kings, maybe wasn't such a great idea. Right. Um, and so also to 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 take away uh, to take away as much of a, a false hold on the plays as possible to really come up with better ways to let playwrights' imaginations run wild. And what was the prompt that you gave the playwright? Actually, what I do is I scout. Oh. Um, so I read. 
probably, I think, any some years I have read as many as 600. Some years I have read as little as 300 plays a year. And I try to get to as many festivals as I can and talk to my colleagues in literary offices and artistic offices. Um, and what we look for is somebody who can write a play about a moment of change in American history. That's the whole prompt yeah. that we give them. Um, and so that idea, I think, you know, we talked a little bit about dramatic structure at that thing yesterday too. Mm-hmm. But just the what it what it does is really smart because it it actually says where is the turning point? Where is a turning point? Where is a turning point? So it automatically gives something dramatic, which I think for history plays is often one of the hardest things to grab onto. Right. Um, with, without it becoming a biopic kind of a thing. Well, that's what I was going to say. You know, getting rid of the, the, the president-based inspiration takes us away from the great man top-down sort of idea of history as well. Yeah, although, you know, uh, our uh, Robert Schenken wrote uh, All the Way, the LBJ play, and then the follow-up Great Society. And I think that one, uh, I, and I'm sure you could talk to Robert more about this, yeah. but it's very, very much in a Shakespearean vein. Yeah. He actually uses Johnson in that play you know, in a very similar way. It's like, it's sort of like Lear meets Henry IV meets, yeah. you know, it's like sort of, or, and you know, Great Society becomes a Richard II kind of a moment mm-hmm. of just sort of this whole uh, aspirational hugeness that right. the Shakespeare history plays have. So we have had writers who have been much more explicit about what it means to do a history play at a Shakespeare festival. Right. And then we've had other people who have, you know, been, you know, that same summer that we ran all the way, we ran a play called Party People by Universes, mm-hmm. which was about the Black Panthers and the Young Lords. And Universes is a spoken word music group. I mean, it's hard to describe them except to say that they are awesome and fabulous. But they did this whole story of the fallout, uh, the 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 great optimism and then the fallout of those radical groups of the late 60s. And it was running across the street from all the way that summer. So two two very different versions of hugeness yeah. and huge questions, yeah. which has been such a thrill to work on. Well, speaking of all the way, that was, all the way was a commission, right? Yeah, all yeah. the way was uh, in the first group of uh, Robert was in the first group of artists that Allison commissioned. And it went on to win the Tony and the Pulitzer. I don't know if it won the Pulitzer. It won some awards. It won some awards. Uh, it shared the Kennedy Prize, which yeah. was uh, an award that Ted Kennedy's family set up. Um, it shared that uh, with actually another one of our commission writers, not his play, but mm-hmm. uh, Dan O'Brien, who's one of our writers. Um, and then, yeah, it went on to Broadway. It won a, Robert won a Tony. It's yeah. very exciting. I have a picture of me and Allison with a Tony. Oh, um, so fun. I was home that night picking up Legos with my kid, watching on TV, <laughs> but it was very exciting. Um, and uh, and then it was made into an HBO movie as of well. Co- that's right, of course. Well, But, but, but th- it's one of the great... I mean, it's a, there's this program has had huge visible success. M- many of your plays have gone on to the, the plays that you guys have commissioned have gone on to other life in other theaters in the region and on Broadway and to, to, for Tony nominations. Can you talk about some of those? Uh, the the plays or the impact? The both. Okay. Start with the plays. The plays. Let's see. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, party people played in New York and Chicago, and all the way is now in regional theater land being done. Uh, lots of places. Roe by Lisa Loomer, uh, which is about the real story behind the Roe v. Wade case. Um, 
that is also been uh, in Florida. It's going to be in Minneapolis. I don't even know where else it's going to be. Right. Um, Naomi Wallace's Liquid Plane uh, played in New York um, as well as here. I mean, and then we've had some plays that started elsewhere, like Indecent was one of ours. Um, you commissioned it but didn't we, produce it. Yeah, we co-commissioned it with Yale. Okay. And then Yale uh, produced it in a co-production with La Jolla and The Vineyard. Uh, I think that was the way it went. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, um, and so we were not part of the original production, mm-hmm. although we helped with the development and supporting Rebecca uh, Tashman and Paula Vogel while they were uh-huh. creating it. And uh, and then we're scheduled to do that show next season. Okay. Which will be a new production, um, actually directed by an OSF favorite, Shauna Cooper, who oh, is sure. a Northwestern person. That's and uh, I'm trying to think of, I mean... The and there was, it, there was, what was the other sweat. play? Oh, yeah, then the, and, and the, yeah, I was going to say, and then there was Sweat, right? The sweat, that little play Sweat. <laughs> um, no, Sweat uh, Sweat has such a, a sweet place in my heart because I actually was lucky enough to be the dramaturg on that okay. show and um, in addition to being a commissioner of it. Um, but yeah, that play, uh, we produced the premiere in 2015. 15, I want to say. It was a co-commission between us and Arena Stage in D.C. And so it went from here to Arena. And then the Public Theater did a separate production with a lot of the same people and same designers, same director, a mm-hmm. um, couple of actors shared in common. And then uh, and then the Public Theater production went on to Broadway. Um, and Lynn, Thompson, uh, Lynn Nottage and uh, Paula Vogel were both nominated for Tony's that year mm-hmm. which was super super thrilling and, and they've known each other a long time too so like in addition to being part of the American Revolutions Collective they're also friends amongst themselves and so and to have the two plays by women on Broadway that year be from our program yeah. that was 2017 the, the Tony year but it was just such a distinct thrill and Lynn won her second Pulitzer for sweat, yeah. um, which was you know, such it's it's such a magnificent play. That one I remember we did a run through. We we do like a hall run at the end of rehearsals before the play moves into tap. Yeah, and I remember sitting there at the hall run and just being like, "This is going to be our generation's death of a salesman. This is going to be that version of definitive moment play, and it's just one of my favorites." Hi, this is Octavius Elise, longtime Bay Area playwright, and you're listening to the Reduced Shakespeare Podcast. Where can you RSC the RSC? You can see Reduced Shakespeare in your own home by owning your very own copy of Pop-Up Shakespeare, illustrated by the marvelous Jenny Mazels. It's on sale worldwide, and you can find links to both Amazon and independent bookstores in the U.S. and the U.K. on our website. And our 2018-2019 tour of William Shakespeare's long-lost first play abridged, The Ultimate Christmas Show abridged, and The Complete Works of William Shakespeare abridged revised continues on October 5th in Athens, Georgia, and continues on to 26 different 
different cities in 18 different states, featuring 11 different actors and three different stage managers. As always, the very best way to stay up to date about all of our worldwide performance dates is to sign up for the Reduced Reader, our email newsletter. Go to ReducedShakespeare.com and click on the link to subscribe and check out our touring page for specific box office, venue, and ticket information. And now back to my conversation with Julie Felice Dubner, the Associate Director of Oregon Shakespeare Festival's American Revolutions, the United States History Cycle. Can you talk a little bit about your path towards um, dramaturgy and literary management? Don't you have a shameful past in improvisation? I do. I have a very shameful past. Um, my misspent youth. Uh, yeah, somehow uh, improv comedy and uh, college actor hist and double major with a history, with history major, somehow that equals dramaturg. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, uh, I, w I did an undergraduate degree in drama and history, or as my father liked to say, uh, party chatter. And then <laughs> I moved to Chicago for the comedy scene, um, and that's a story for another podcast. Okay, good. <laughs> that involves uh, maybe some bourbon. Um, and then, uh, yeah, when I was in Chicago, I had dramaturged a show in college, um, which basically meant I did the historical research. Mm -hmm. um, but I had a sense of what a dramaturg was. And uh, there's a theater in Chicago called Lifeline Theater, which I think is still still going. Um, I, I was, I think, the first person outside of their friend group that they hired to work there because my, my college job was being a box office manager, so I got hired to be the box office manager there. I was the one who numbered their seats for the first time. Um, but uh, Meryl Friedman, who was the artistic director at the time, uh, she was incredibly kind to me and, and uh, knew sort of my my history and was there when I found out that I had not been accepted to move on further in the Second City School. Um, that's the, my, 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 my story that should involve bourbon. Um, but uh, she asked me, she knew that I knew a lot about history, so I wound up dramaturging their production of Pride and Prejudice. And then she recommended me for an internship at the Goodman, which um, was not the best use of my time, but I made a lot of friends, and so that was nice. <laughs> and then somehow all of that meant that I got into dramaturgy school yeah, at yeah. Columbia, and I applied to Columbia because I was homesick to go back to New York, not because I had a great plan. <laughs> um, that's the improver in me. Um, that's, so that stays. Why, why plan? We'll just see what happens. Yes, and. Yes, and. Um, so well, somebody will take the lights out at some point. <laughs> exactly. There's some. I think I left something in the oven. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so yeah. So I went to grad school and then I went back to Chicago and started my freelance career. And then that took me to Philadelphia to work at a music theater. And then I went to Louisville to work uh, at Actors Theater. I was actually brought in to be the dead guy girl because I was the history person, but then we all became new play people there. So, uh, so I worked on. I like to joke that I did six Christmas carols and six Humana festivals, <laughs> and then uh, and then I got the job here at OSF at the very end of 2010. Right. Well, I mentioned the improv is a great training ground for the American theater generally because the American theater is going through a crisis right now with all of the various. Uh, improv will save us all. <laughs> improv will save us all. You know, it's funny. I I love doing events. Um, you know, the the panel discussion that you were at yesterday, mm -hmm. or talking to audiences, or teaching, or any of those things of just sort of being on my feet in a moment is a very very comfortable place for me. And I do think I I don't know that. Um, 
that improv will save us. <laughs> um, but I do think that um, having a sense of humor might, and and I think for for me, and I you know when you talk about the current crisis, you know, I've been doing a lot of work in this past year around women's issues in particular which uh, I was a women's studies minor, was part of my party chatter. So mm-hmm. my, feminism, my feminism goes all the way back to, you know. Dead like, guys and girls. Dead guys and girls. Um, mostly dead guys. And then I said, where are the dead girls? Um, <laughs> but we, uh, I think one of the things we don't realize about comedy is how much of it is fueled by rage and how that rage can actually be something that has a purpose. Um, that it is not, I am actually very comfortable being an angry person. Um, and I, I've noticed, especially living on the West Coast, people are not comfortable with being angry at all. Especially in Oregon, dude. Yeah, dude, dude. Yeah, they're so yeah. chill. Um, but of actually figuring out a way to use, uh, to me, the rage has a purpose. Right. And some of that purpose can be as simple as survival, that we, we laugh so that we don't die and then we can move forward. And so being able to be quick on my feet, you know, being able to, you know, shift a conversation or pick up on that thing that you said and, you yeah. know, call it back yeah. is, is something that I use all the time, even when I'm not totally aware of it. And so is that, is when you're looking at new plays to bring it back to the American Revolution series, is, is humor a thing that you look for? Oh my God, I love comedy so hard, and um, and it's been a it, it's been a one of the big challenges of my career is that I've worked for artistic directors who denigrate comedy, um, whether intentionally or purposefully. But I think you know, in artistic directors, they only get to program so many shows a year, and everybody wants to do the most important thing, and it's very hard to explain how important comedy is to people who aren't naturally aligned to comedy. Um, and also, I think, uh, you know, I read a lot of plays. It's That's what I trained to do, and I think I'm pretty good at it. So I can read a comedy on the page, and I might not know exactly how funny it is, but I can tell if something's funny reading it, um, which, is not, which is a difficult skill to, it, it takes practice. And I think a lot of the folks that I read with don't always have the practice for that. The other thing I think about a lot with comedy is um, how much our audiences really crave it. And you know, going, going, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make sense of this. You're gonna see. I'm gonna tie it all together. Oh, but, I have no doubt. Well, I think one of the things I learned watching the success of All the Way was the same thing I learned from watching the success of musicals. The the not-for-profit theater might not actually recoup the cost on it because doing that many people and that many sets and that many costumes is a huge outlay. But what you get in audience response, which then creates a love again between the form and the stage and the people, I think that part of it, we miss that when we don't endorse more comedy. And you know, we did a show here by another American Revolutions writer earlier this season called Destiny of Desire by Karen Zacharias, and and we're also doing Book of Will by Lauren Gunderson this year. And to me, where like this all collides with Me Too land, I, you know, so many of my colleagues, so many dramaturgs right now are women. We're a bunch of smart girls with glasses, everybody's best friends, and we have been promoting work like Lauren's and Karen's and many others for many, many years. 
and and comedies by writers like Lynn Nottage, who we don't always associate with comedy, but she's actually written some really funny plays. Yeah. But people do the serious ones. And so how do you, like Karen and Lauren are having this great moment right now where I think between the two of them, they're the most produced playwrights or living playwrights in the country right now. But how do you explain the importance of that, that they are not, they are not doing something lightweight. They are not doing something unimportant. That actually what they're doing is the most important thing to me why I do theater is to be in that room with a bunch of people experiencing something together which is the thing you can't get anywhere else and you know Anne Bogart used to call it moving the molecules you're all in the room moving the molecules together and that part of it um, I don't think anything does that better than comedy except for maybe musicals and then followed by large cast plays and all of these things are things that the American theater in the last, you know, I've been in the field for almost 30 years now. God, I'm old. Um, but, uh, and, you know, I've been out of graduate school for almost, I think, 20 years now, 22. Um, but uh, I've seen steadily American theaters programming smaller cast, smaller cast, smaller cast, serious, 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 and then maybe throwing something fluffy at an audience. Um, and I've got nothing against fluff, but I don't think most comedy is fluff. Even improv, right? Like we're making it up on the spot, but again, it is fueled by a rage. It is, it is about answering a question with a laugh. It is about laughing in the face of, of death or destruction or despair. And that, to me, I wish that there was more of. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Leave us your thoughts and feedback on our website or on our podcast page on Facebook or via Twitter or even send us an email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can find our podcast page at RSC Podcast on Facebook or General Reduction on Instagram at Reduced Shakespeare Company or on Twitter at Reduced. You can also follow me on Twitter at Austin Titchener. Thanks as always to historical artifact Matthew Croak, web services by Ginger Power Limited, Music by John Weber and Garage Band. Our random fan shout-out this week goes to Barry Van Zetten. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to Octavio Solis, whose new play, Mother Road, will have its world premiere at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in 2019. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. I'm Austin Titchener, 615-1845ths of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. Well, this has been so fabulous, and that next time when we meet over bourbon, mm -hmm. let's talk more about anti-comedy snobbery, can we? Uh, absolutely. This podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company, reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.